Today we are in the fifth message in this series exploring worship, a life of worship. And we've been looking at worship sort of alongside of or concurrently with the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality study that many of our small groups are doing. Again, those books and devotionals are available downstairs as well during the fellowship time. But this morning, I want us to think about how our worship and how our response to, to who God is and who we are as his people is shaped and informed by our families, by the households and, and the people that we have grown up among. I wonder if you've ever had one of those mornings where you wake up early and you think, maybe even through gritted teeth a little bit, today things are going to go smoothly, right? no matter what. Today, everyone in this house is going to eat breakfast in peace. We're going to put our clothes on. We're going to brush our teeth and get on the school bus or get in the car to come to church or whatever it is. And we're all going to be happy and healthy. Right? And that's your plan. But, you know, thinking, speaking hypothetically here, somebody in the family maybe wakes up grumpy. And they come to the breakfast table, and that grumpiness, it's like a, an infectious disease. It starts to spread around the table. And then before you know it, again, just hypothetically speaking, you maybe lose your temper. And then tears are shed. And suddenly what you were determined would be this wonderful, peaceful morning is now melting down around you in chaos. I wonder if you can relate at all to that thought experiment. If you can, it's probably because there is a kind of invisible power, a very real power though, that is latent in our families. And that try as we may, we, we live to and, and from and respond out of that, that power that's sort of intrinsic in the families we belong to. Our families create patterns and, and systems that, that sometimes we're not even quite sure how we made our way into. But make no mistake, those things are kind of humming along inside of us. They're like our operating system. Right? And they, they follow us long after we leave the homes we grew up in. I like to think of these, these systems as family liturgies. And now we, we know that term when we come to church, right? We have a, a liturgy. We have a generally fixed way we do things and we approach sort of the life we share together on Sunday mornings. Right? Every Sunday we start out by singing and then we confess and then we pray and then we preach and then we give our tithes and then we sing some more and we finish with a benediction. Right? And that, that liturgy, that set of, of habits form us. Right? A liturgy creates rhythms and, and expectations about how this church family operates. But when we leave Sunday morning and we go home, we enter into a, a much greater and, and more complex and detailed liturgy with our families. Right? And there we're, we're taught how to rehearse what we're meant to think about certain things, how we're supposed to feel in certain situations. Today I wanted to share a brief clip with you from uh, the humorist and writer Ian Fraser. 
It's, uh, it's from a piece entitled Lamentations of the Father. And it's, it's where he's explaining some of the liturgies that probably all of us have wished to impart upon our young children at some point. And he's, he's framed them in a rather biblical vocabulary. So just take a listen. Various other laws, statutes, and ordinances. Bite not, lest you be cast into quiet time. Neither drink of your own bathwater, nor of bathwater of any kind, nor rub your feet on bread, even if it be in the package, nor rub yourself against cars, nor against any building, nor eat sand. Leave the cat alone. For what has the cat done that you should so afflict it with tape? And hum not that humming in your nose as I read, nor stand between the light and the book. Indeed, you will drive me to madness, nor forget what I said about the tape. Complaints and Lamentations O my children, you are disobedient. For when I tell you what you must do, you argue and dispute hotly, even to the littlest detail. And when I do not exceed, you cry out and hit and kick. Yes, and even sometimes do you spit and shout, Stupid head! and other (laughs) blasphemies, and hit and kick the wall and the molding thereof when you are sent to the corner. And though the law teaches that no one shall be sent to the corner for more minutes than he has years of age, yet I would leave you there all day, so mighty am I in anger. A lot more where that came from if you want to look it up. We all have have certain laws or commandments, right, in our households. In chapter 3 of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Peter Scazzaro suggests that that these kind of commandments get handed down in every family. And they're not just about what to do with the cat or how to behave around the table, but they, they reach much further into the way we come to think about money or the way we approach conflict or how we express emotion, the way we enter into relationships or come to think about our sexuality. And these, these things, Scazzaro says, function almost like invisible scripts that we follow, usually unconsciously, without even being aware of it, as we make our way through life. I wonder, what were the commandments in your family growing up in these areas? Right? And, and if you're parenting or leading a family now, what are, what are the commandments that you are imparting? One of the, the liturgies or commandments that I internalized as a young person was that the most reliable way for me to, to garner praise as a young person was through achievement of various kinds. Like every child, I wanted affirmation. I desperately wanted my parents to be proud of me. And so I worked really hard not to disappoint my parents or my teachers or authority figures. I got straight A's at school. I was a model of good behavior, in public at least, when I was out uh, in school or at church. But, but all of that also caused a, a great sense of pressure on me and, and expectation. 
because of that, that script that was operating. Right? Outside, I, I looked like a kid who was well-behaved and had it all together. But inside, I was often lonely and, and anxious in different ways. As a teenager, though, this is one of the key areas that, that the gospel spoke to in my life. It was, it was one of the reasons that I responded to the good news of Jesus. Because struggling to be certain of who I was and to know where love and affirmation could be found, right, I was introduced to a God who loved me without condition, without the pressure of achievement. And so in beginning to walk with Jesus... Something deep inside of me came, came to life. But if I'm honest with you, I, I've still lived the last 25 years of my life trying to sort of bring those, those personal and family liturgies into, into congruity with the life Jesus calls me into. The scriptures say that when we are joined to the person of Jesus, our, our, our sense of identity and who we are becomes part of a new creation reality. A new liturgy begins. But it doesn't happen all in one fell swoop. It's, it's not a, a magic trick. Right there is, is something that, that brings us from that first moment of, of faith and belief toward Jesus over, over time, where we become increasingly more like him. And I think that the scriptures call that, that progression and the way we move down at the, the exercise of faith and trust. And just like our families have this invisible power that, that works within us to shape us, faith also connects us to something that is unseen, but is deeply transformative. So this morning I want to look at the, the nature of that faith as it's described in Hebrews chapter 11. I'd like you to turn there with me and I'll pray for us as we study the word of God today. Lord, we give you thanks that you have created the family to bless and sustain and to shape us. Lord, we also confess that our part in the families we grew up in and the families we may be parenting now is, is an incomplete one, Lord. It's, it's broken, it's marred by sin. Lord, we desire to also be recreated. Lord, would you demonstrate to us what it means to also belong to the family of faith and to see your unseen power working within us. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I teach today, may all our desires and meditations be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. The backdrop to this part of the letter to the Hebrews in particular is one where the author is speaking to the hardship and persecution and rejection that many in the early church were experiencing. And in many cases, that, that sense of rejection came after they had chosen to follow the way of Jesus Christ and, and their families and friends and community had, had put distance between them. And so at the very end of chapter 10, just before this passage, the writer of Hebrews exhorts 
the people of God not to shrink back, not to go back to their old way of life when facing rejection, but instead to move forward through the exercise of faith. Hebrews 11.1 Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. According to these first few verses, faith is going beyond what we can merely see. And so faith in in going beyond what we can see is a critical component in moving out of our past, out of our old self, and, and into that new creation reality we just spoke of. But for many of us, there are places we feel stuck in life. Maybe you have a frustrating habit. Maybe you have a particular pattern of thinking or feeling. Maybe there are circumstances that are largely beyond your control. But whatever it is, the net result is that you routinely feel defeated. You feel stuck. It doesn't seem like things are going to change. Again, our family systems tend to be one of the stickier places in our lives. Maybe you grew up with an angry parent, and now you often find yourself angry. And you you want to get unstuck, but you don't know how to do that. Or maybe you were deeply hurt or wounded by someone you loved, so that, that even now it's still hard to believe that love will not always wound, will not always hurt you. And trust, then, is is difficult. Or maybe you've lost someone in death, and, and you feel stuck in the paralysis that grief brings. And often when we are, are stuck in these ways, it, it gradually begins to, to drain and wear on our souls, so that over time we may arrive in place called despair. And the way I would define despair is is that when in a particular place you feel like failure is so inevitable, so likely, that you begin to live your life expecting more of the same, resigned to to that fate. Or or despair can also take another attack and it can can feel that things are so hopeless and so you you become incredibly anxious and frenetic and and trying to figure out how you're going to solve or fix the problem but routinely you just end up back in the same place. So it's a pattern of despair. And if that kind of despair describes any part of your life, then I think that is particularly where the author of Hebrews here would challenge us to embrace a liturgy of faith instead. According to verse 1, faith is confidence in what we hope for and also assurance about what we don't see. Faith, confidence, hope, and assurance. 
right? Who, who doesn't want those things? But most of us don't just wake up in the morning and, and ta-da, they're, they're, they're there. Right? How, how do you lay hold of these things? How do you grow into them? Well, I think it's important to, to remember that when the scriptures speak of faith, it's not just a cognitive assent. It's not just a willing of ourselves in a particular direction. I think faith is almost always derivative in the scriptures. Human faith is always drawn out of the faithfulness of our God. Faith is being confident, hopeful, and assured that God's reality is bigger. It goes beyond what I currently perceive in the moment. And so if I'm feeling defeated or in that cycle of despair or crisis, faith is God's gift to see that my current reality is, is not the, the final and total uh, estimation of that, of that event. Faith borrows from the knowledge that, that God sees where I'm at and has sworn his faithfulness to me. And so I respond then in faith from his faithfulness. Verse 3 here in this passage explains that, that faith sees God's presence even in, in what is invisible, even in what is disordered, even what, what, what seems like chaos. Faith knows that God is there. And it says in verse 3 that at the very beginning of creation, God brought what is now visible out of the invisible. And theologians call this creation ex nihilo. Right? Something came from what looked like nothing. This is a, a uniquely Judeo-Christian cosmology. It's our view of the way the world is. And so the author of Hebrews says, if we believe that this is how God operated at the beginning of all things, he created something from nothing, the visible from the invisible, then why cannot we be confident and hopeful and assured that whatever chaos or darkness we feel stuck in now, that, that God can also bring something from that. God continues to possess this power of recreation today. It says this is what faith lays a hold of, that this is what our God is like. I found this painting this week and there was a tradition many centuries ago that the, the virtue of hope, which is deeply connected to faith, right, and is spoken of here in verse 1. The virtue of hope was often personified in paintings as, as a woman standing with a, a brilliant light, standing in, in dark places, in dungeons of despair. And the idea is that to grow in faith and hope is learning to perceive ourselves and to perceive our reality by this light. Right? To, to develop eyes to see ourselves in the very real love of God that, that lights up dark places. Right? Hope tells us that, that, that over the darkness and the deep and the chaos, there is a God who hovers there and he says, let there be Light, a God who would lead us forward out of the place we're stuck. 
And as you move through chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, I think this is a demonstration of how God has done this in one particular family. How God has brought hope, how God has unstuck what has been deeply broken and ingrained. On the one hand, we could look at the Old Testament as a, as a rather depressing story, right? Of, of a family that's rife with dysfunction, that's weighed down by generational sin. And as you read through the book of Genesis as an example, there's, there's some pretty broken things happening there. But, but across that whole family history, writ large on the pages of Scripture, is a story of God's faithfulness. His ability to to recreate and renew and to lead them forward in faith. And so Hebrews 11, as it continues, says that in the stories of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Joseph, we discover God remaking a people through faith. God bringing something out of what looked to be nothing. So I want to finish this morning with one of these examples in verse 24. The author highlights the life of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Last week, we we also looked at the life of Moses and considered how he was transformed by learning to see God, by learning to look upon him. And and as Moses came to know God, then Moses also discovered his own God-given identity and self. Here in Hebrews 11, though, Moses is described initially as a man torn or caught between two different families. He was raised in the family of Pharaoh, and in that particular family, he had all kinds of of material advantages. But Moses was also ethnically and, and generationally tied to the Hebrew people, who were at that time suffering in servitude. And the question for Moses was, which of these families am I going to choose? Which of these will will I grow into? Which one will I draw my identity from? The passage here says in verse 24 that Moses, by faith, breaks with the patterns and the power of Pharaoh's house. And he consciously chooses to, to belong to God's people. By faith, he chooses what is uncertain, unknown, probably foolish in in many estimations. And he leaves behind a comfortable privilege and he enters into the, the vulnerability of slavery. 
In the same way, it takes courage for you and I to, to move out of our past and, and to choose something other than, than any of the destructive patterns we've received from our families. Right? It requires faith. It's, it's a forward movement that's not always easy. To break out of generational patterns like addiction or, or controlling behavior or, or a pattern of self-condemnation, right, that requires the exercise of faith. And if we look again at this passage, what enables Moses to break with his past, verses 26 and 27 say that Moses was able to perceive, he was able to see that which was real but but invisible on a certain level. Verse 26 says, Moses saw, he looked forward to a reward that was greater than the treasures of Egypt. The, The reward of being counted with, of belonging to Christ. And then it says in verse 27 that that Moses walked out of Egypt. He left his past behind because Moses saw him who was invisible. For you and I to to move forward into the people of God, the the people Christ has, has created and is forming and fashioning us to be, we need a kind of vision that only faith provides. We need to to hear the voice of God's Holy Spirit drawing us forward, renewing our our sense of hope and confidence that he's promised to to move us along. And I think that the place where that spiritual vision of faith is sharpened is in the practice of contemplation, in the practice of worship. Right? We learn to see with the eyes of faith by spending time looking at God, looking at who He is. Right? Worship draws us into that place of presence. And it, and it teaches us to see what's unseen by drawing faith from, from the deeper well of God's faithfulness. So I want to finish this morning with just a few moments of prayer. And I want to ask you, you can close your eyes for a few moments. I want you to consider, maybe identify one particular place where you feel stuck. Where you feel that that pattern of despair at work. And where your past seems to be dictating your future right now. And as we pray, I just want to invite God into that space and ask the Lord how He sees that reality. So I'll be quiet for a moment and, and I'll sort of prayerfully lead us and then we'll We'll finish. Lord, we present ourselves to you. We're grateful that you see us. And just pray that you would would show us right now, each one of us individually, a place where you desire to to unstick, to, to release new life to us. Lord, I, I pray that in that place that we are discerning and, and envisioning, 
that we would notice you there. Lord, in, in a pattern of whether it's our, our anger or our depression or, or the weight of negativity we might carry, whatever it is, Lord, may we notice that you are present with us. May we see you in that particular place. And then, Lord, I would just ask that you might speak to us about what you see in that situation, the way you see us, the way you see that reality. And, Lord, would you grant us that vision? Lord, would you give us faith to to trust you that you can work something new? anyone is in Christ they are a new creation the old has gone away behold the new has come Lord would you lead us in worship to see your face today in Jesus name